Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens and My Time Capsule is a podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the award-winning comedian and writer from London, Daniel Fox. Daniel's easygoing delivery and sharp jokes have quickly established him as one of the most exciting new acts on the UK comedy circuit, whilst his comedy sketch videos have earned him a huge online following and millions of views. On screen, Daniel has performed on BBC One and BBC Three as part of the BBC New Comedy Awards, and as well as stand-up, Daniel also writes plays, screenplays and musical theatre. With his co-writer, Robin Grant, he's written Unfortunate, the untold story of Ursula the Sea Witch, one of the Underbelly Festival's 2022 headline shows, and previously a sell-out hit at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, Best Musical of the Fringe, and nominated for Best Musical Theatre Book Writing at the Writers Guild of Great Britain Awards. 2020. On stage, Daniel has endeared himself to audiences around the UK, provided tour support for Josh Widdicombe and Sophie Hagen, and he is the winner of the Brighton Fringe Award for Excellence and a finalist in the Chortle Student Comedy Awards. Graham Norton described him as funny and filthy, which surely makes him worthy of being a guest on my time capsule. Well, let's find out, shall we? Here is the young, handsome, witty Daniel Fox. I bloody hate him already. I'm well aware of how difficult it is and how competitive the world of stand-up is, which you've very boldly gone into. I think you're slightly mad. I think all stand-ups are. Because uh, I went to see a show last night, Daniel, in Tunbridge Wells, where I live. Yeah. And it had three performers. 
And they'd sold so few tickets that they oh, moved no. it from the theatre to the bar. No. And it was a brightly lit bar. Yeah. And these poor people. Gosh. Yeah, I know. That is a feeling we all know. Um, <laughs> the sign that you've been doing it for a couple of years is that that happens. And rather than it being gut-wrenching horror, it's just a little... Oh, okay. One of these. All right. The sort of resigned feeling of like, okay, here we go then. Yeah. These things happen. It's a combination of just suddenly the time, the weather. Yeah. There may have been a lot of people on recently that everybody knew. Yeah. People are going away on holiday. It's whatever's going on. I think it's the summer weather. I've noticed most gigs have sort of dropped capacity, even ones that are usually completely rammed. I think it's just something about, I think comedy isn't like a summary activity. And yet it's a time when it's fantastically busy. I mean, it must be great fun at the moment because you've got festivals, yeah. you've got all sorts of gigs going on. Yeah. And you're going to Edinburgh. Of course, the great thing about going to Edinburgh is that it won't be sunny and balmy. Do you know what? You say that, but and I, and I mm. always think that, and I go up, because I've, <laughs> I've been up for sort of bits of stand. It's my, it's my sort of debut hour this year, but I've been up for bits of like, I did a half an hour show last year, and then previously I've, I've been up with sort of musical theatre things because I write like musical theatre mm. because I love cold weather and I always go up <laughs> so ready with like a suitcase full of like wools and <laughs> all the different coats I'm going to wear and inevitably there's at least two weeks where I'm sweating like a little pig because it's <laughs> boiling hot and last year there was a heat wave I think it reached 35 degrees. Madness. Yeah, and there's audiences full of people. I went to see some, like, amazing comedians, but their whole audiences were just full of people fanning themselves, <laughs> like a scene out of a church in the 50s, of everyone sort of... Yeah, deep south of America. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It just sort of tricks you and um, isn't as anywhere near as cold as it promises to be. No. I had to resort to buying a pair of shorts last year, which is not something I would ordinarily do, so... So sort of whatever you prepared for, it sort of goes, no, not that. You can't have that. No. You can have, you can have a bin strike in 35 degrees. Yeah. So this is your first full hour that you're going to be doing it's this year. First, yeah. Yeah. Which is sort of feels quite momentous. I think people build it up as a thing of rite of passage thing of the first hour. And people spend years building up to their first hour. And then in this country, rattle out an hour every year from then on. Yeah. I don't know if it's a mental thing or if it's just getting the skill to put together that first hour seems to take a lot longer mm. but then in america they do the complete opposite where they they do 20 minutes for years and eventually one day do an hour but like generally it's it's just working up a set yeah and they'll do the same set for years and years and years whereas here we turn over material a lot faster big country big country america you can constantly yeah. find a new audience that's the thing yeah that's probably yeah. it that is probably what it is yeah but um, a lovely venue. You're going to the Pleasance Courtyard, aren't you? Yes, I'm very, I'm thrilled. And actually, talking of heat, mm -hmm. I'm in the Baby Grand, which is kind of a lovely shipping container. <laughs> and the only venue that I went in last year during the heat wave and went, oh, it's actually quite cool in here. Right. So I think it will suit the show very well, but it's also beautifully ventilated. And that is... A real plus for me. And it sounds rather appropriate, doesn't it, with your musical connection? Mm, yeah. And I sort of feel like I'm aspiring to be grand one day. For now, I'll just be baby grand. <laughs> Lovely. So we're going to talk about five things from your life that you've chosen to put into a time capsule. That's the game. Yeah, I'm excited. Oh, brilliant. I've been having a good long think and listening to what lots of other people have said and thinking, hmm, mm. what would I do? Yeah. <laughs> My mind immediately went so many things that initially I was thinking was all food related. It probably says a lot about me. And then other people, I just listened to 
I just listened to Bridget Christie's and she sort of, the concept of hope. I was like, oh yeah, that probably is a good thing to put in there, actually, <laughs> probably, Bridget. Probably, yes. <laughs> Maybe I'll swap pan au chocolat for um, <laughs> world peace or something. Maybe. <laughs> I think I've gravitated a little bit to things that I think might have a bit of a time limit on them. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think I'm being a preservationist in some of the things <laughs> I've picked. <laughs> okay, well, let's have a look at them. Let's see what number one is. Okay, number one is coffee. I love coffee so much. And I think I'm going to specifically say a bag of Perky Blenders uh, <laughs> roast, which is a, an East London-based kind of coffee roasting grinding company. Yeah. Uh, very, lots of, I mean, they have all sorts of different types, but I love, I love coffee and it's apparently on its way out. And there's different predictions of some people saying by 2080, there'll be no more coffee. Some people 2050, which is so close. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I'll be gone, but you'll be still there, you know, hankering after a cup. If the coffee's not here, I won't still be here. I'll have, <laughs> I'll have pressed myself through a cafetiere. Is that climate change? Are they saying that... The, yeah, it's the, climate change. Mine. Good And Lord. it's weird stuff as well, because it's obviously coffee's grown in quite hot climes, but it's, um, I was reading about it, and it's to do with the more heat there is, the more insects there are in those areas. right. And they reduce the soil quality somehow. They, they make it looser or something. Mm. And they also affect the plants and all sorts of stuff. But it's, it's resulting in fewer and fewer healthy trees bearing beans. And right. something also about in Colombia, where they're grown a lot, like the mountains, something to do with the climate has resulted in shorter daylight hours. Good Lord. I don't know what that is, but that reduction in hours is by quite a chunk right. has meant that that's just bearing less fruit. So what, clouding up, do you think? I think maybe. Yeah, yeah it must be. It must be something to do with that. The days wouldn't get shorter, would they? But uh, I suppose mm. if you have a heavy cloud cover in the morning yeah. and the evening and it only dissipates in the day, then that's, if it needs full sunlight to grow yeah. properly, yeah. Wow. Or some sort of haze or something. Yeah, so anyway, I'm putting a good few crates of coffee in, enough for me. <laughs> perky, blinders, perky blinders. Perky blinders. Blender, perky blenders. Perky blenders, of course it perky is. Perky blenders. Of course, how dare I not get that joke? <laughs> how ridiculous. <laughs> I feel I should be thrown out of the writer's union. Is that them at the door? I think, <laughs> I think it is. Oh, no, the pun brigade are here. <laughs> They've decided I can't be a member anymore. How embarrassing. <laughs> removing your fingers. <laughs> So uh, when did you discover coffee then? How young were you? Do you know what? I came to it, I think, in the most malicious way. I used to hate it so much and thought it was so disgusting. And then while I was writing my dissertation, sort of my final year at university, I started almost like, I've never, I've, I've never been like a, a one for drugs or substances or anything like that, but I started using coffee like a drug mm. to the point of hate, taking like sort of Kenko uh, just like freeze-dried, crappy coffee. <laughs> and having maybe five or six tablespoons of the stuff right. in a mug. And so it was like almost quite thick, pinching my nose, glugging it back, and then sort of rinsing my mouth out so I didn't have to taste it. <laughs> but then I would sort of jitter my way through, but be so wired and just plow through an essay. And after that, when that sort of came to an end, I obviously wasn't doing that anymore, but I just sort of had acquired a taste for it. Is it a taste for the caffeine, do you think? No, because a, a, a good decaf, also lovely. Mm. It's, it's the smell of it, and it's increasingly become the ritual of it. Yeah. I love just the process of making it. I love the process of walking to buy one. <laughs> it just feels like such a little treat to go and, and walking around holding one, I think, looks very chic. <laughs> uh, and I think there was something about being very adult 
yeah. holding a little, especially if you've got one of the little espresso cups. Mm-hmm. I think I, I sort of walk around and think, I am Paris. I sort of, <laughs> if you go to a cafe and order an espresso and they give you it in a big cup, I think, oh, for God's sake, what was the point? So now it's an es- Hmm. I'd have to work this one out, down before I tell you, because I don't okay. want to get it wrong. But I believe that in Italian, it's espresso for one mm-hmm. and espressi for more than one. Isn't that good? No. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So you'd order due espressi. Oh, I love that. Mm. Oh, I've not heard that before. Because I love that, I love that really what we should all be ordering is a panino <laughs> rather than a panini. <laughs> and I... The faces yeah. on a on a cafe Nero representative when you order a yes, or, tuna panino. Or if you really want to impress them, uh, I only know all this because I have a friend who lives in Sicily, uh, which is mm. a place where coffee is absolutely the major part of any day. It's sacred. Uh, and uh, my friend always orders a ristretti. Yes. Yes, you know that? It's basically the very first drips of an espresso. Mm. So you have a tiny, tiny thing, but it's, it means it's the strongest and it's the most pure. Oh, wow. Hmm? People get, I, I think, given the tiniest push, I could get so into. Because <laughs> they, they talk about, like, in, in Italy, mm-hmm. they talk about the difference between a glass and a ceramic espresso uh, little cup. And there's people that are so particular about it having to be glass or it having to be ceramic. Because mm-hmm. it completely alters the flavour, so they say. Yes. And of course, everybody in Italy claims that Italian coffee is the best, and everybody in Spain says that Spanish coffee is the best. Mm. And the Frenchman thinks that the only people who know how to make coffee. But of course, um, the real people who are who really convinced that they know how to make it, and actually, uh, they haven't got the faintest idea, um, are people from Greece and Turkey. Oh, do you uh, think? Have you tried it? <laughs> you might have just, you're, you're going to be flooded <laughs> with comments now. Well, they, do they have a lot of sugar there? They have a lot of sugar in Italy as well, Yeah, they? they do. A little, lot of them put a lot of sugar in, but actually it's really thick. Mm. It sounds like your Kenko spoonful. Yeah, my uni. It's really thick oh. and it's sort of grainy. Well, they have the thing, they, they heat it in like a... Have you ever been to a hotel where they've got the, the I don't know if it's Turkish, the, the method of making them where it's like a sand bowl? Yes. I think that's fascinating. <laughs> I could get into it, even if it tastes disgusting, I could get into it just to feel like a sort of desert witch kind of <laughs> mixing up my coffee in a bowl of hot sand. Yes. There is something rather lovely about the process, isn't there? Mm. Quite often in a, in a restaurant at the end of a meal, I don't want a large coffee. So actually an espresso is exactly the right size. But sometimes it's fantastically bitter. Mm. But when you get one that's not, it's really lovely, isn't it? Yeah, I, I love a, a sort of chocolatey mm. coffee. <laughs> um, smooth, smooth. I, I think there's... And it's weirdly always the hipster cafes, very sour. Yeah. Fruity kind of... I hate that. I can't get on board with it. And again, I have watched many videos mm. on how I don't have one of those kind of barista espresso machines. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, I could get very obsessive about it if I had the time. <laughs> it's something to do with the length of the extraction, how long it's poured for. Yeah. has to be between 25 to 30 seconds. <laughs> and if it's, if it's over that, that's when it starts to taste more burnt. And if it's under, that's when it starts to taste more sour. And all sorts of stuff about bars of pressure. And yeah, mm. I think it's fascinating. But we don't give them the credit. In this country, at least. Like, baristas, people just assume, oh, they're just making a coffee. No, they're operating violent and mysterious machinery. (laughs) Indeed, they are, aren't they? I would love to have one in my home. The closest I've come to it is the old, basically, a percolator. Mm. Do you know where you put the little things, you screw it on, and you put the coffee in the top, and then you just put it on the heat. 
and then you hear it bubbling away. And then when it steams, it's ready. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. I, one of my friends, um, a comedian called Dane Buckley, was mm-hmm. telling me he used to have one of those alarm clock coffee machines. <laughs> right. Where it would start, it, you'd set it for a time and it would start <laughs> brewing the coffee sort of three minutes before it would ring. Yes. So you'd ring and then you'd smell this sort of coffee that would be dripping through at that moment. I think I could very much get on board with that. Kind of Wallace and Gromit <laughs> vibe. That's a nice way to be woken up. Um, but any time, I agree with you. I do like coffee. I do like good coffee. Yeah. Even a good instant. There are a couple of good instants out there, and that's fine. Yeah. But I do love when it's a particularly good one. I'm thrilled. Uh, I used to love making them. I used to work as a waiter when I was at university in a kind of catering company that would do all these really fancy events. And I used to love making the teas and coffees, particularly <laughs> the coffees. But I once did an event for um, a royal function. Mm. and I made a coffee. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was a tea. Mm. It was a mint tea. But I spilled it. Someone bumped into me, and it spilt down Princess Anne's legs. (laughs) I didn't make any more for them after that. No, (laughs) and then she never won a gold medal at the Olympics as a result. Never won after that. Yeah, always blamed it on you. Uh, Well, I'm going to put in for you, as a special treat, the most expensive coffee in the world, which um, you must have heard of, surely. It's coffee that has passed through the gut of a cat. I think it's a serval. Yeah, it's, it's like a weird, weaselly cat thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? I've, I think I've like read about this once, or seen it in a film once or something. <laughs> oh, how does it work? What, what, why is it? What does it do? I don't know. I suppose the bean, having been digested has a particular flavour. It would, wouldn't it? Well, it would do, yes, but not the flavour that I would anticipate, I hope. Yeah. The question I always have in those circumstances is, almost with all food, who the hell discovered that? Oh, my God, yeah, there's so many things like that where I think, oh, who, who what pervert decried that? And then was like, actually, to be fair, everybody, um, <laughs> this is pretty good. I always think that people must have for years tried bananas and got, oh, no, they're disgusting. Oh, no, no, they're, mm-hmm. they, you can't eat them. They're disgusting. And then somebody went, actually, if you take this skin off. Yeah. <laughs> no, they make your mouth feel like rubber. No, no. No. Snap them like this. (laughs) All right, Daniel, let's put coffee in then as your first thing. What's the second thing? Um, I am bringing with me a Smythson. And I think it's Smythson. You know the luxury leather goods? It's Mm S-M-Y-T-H-S-O-N. I've heard a couple of people call it Smithson. Right. And if anyone writes and say I'm saying it wrong, I will never speak again. (laughs) But it's Smythson, (laughs) Um, a leather journal. Ah. They're very expensive, mm-hmm. but they're so beautiful. It's like a, it's called the Smithson Soho size. They have all these different sizings, leather bound notebook. And it's got a kind of crocodile effect on the leather. And I just think there's no more beautiful thing. They make this paper that is their kind of trademark paper. Mm. And it's called Blue Featherweight. <laughs> and it's a paper that they invented in like the early 1900s and patented and have protected like so aggressively because it's half the weight of standard paper but you can write on it with a fountain pen and it doesn't bleed through oh perfect for a journal yeah and then they were basically the the people that made these notebooks for like all the sort of top writers and mm. big travelers and people would buy them because it was kind of their aim was to make the first journals that were easily portable and not heavy and could just go in a bag and not add much weight and i love writing by hand 
And it feels like so special. And again, like kind of ritualistic to like get out this beautiful thing and write in it. Do you keep a journal? I keep a journal. I don't write in it. I'd love to be someone that writes in every day. Mm. But I've, I've sort of found that the only way I can really do it is to, I write when I can remember and have had a sort of, I don't know, something momentous that I want to make a note of. Yeah. Uh, and then I might add in a few other bits while I'm there. Or I also let myself use it as a kind of to-do list. Mm -hmm. So it'll have a few, it'll be a mix of some pages of journaling and then some pages of need to do this, brainstorming this, writing down a bit of comedy, and then another journal entry. And I think I will probably enjoy that more if I ever go to read back. Yeah. Because it actually is a bit more of a working thing. I'd love to have a brain like Alan Bennett or something where I could be like, actually come up with something funny <laughs> out of dated and mother and I went to, but I, um, <laughs> I just wouldn't, no. like, that's not my thing. But uh, I used to write, just practice my handwriting over and over again when I was a teenager mm. and younger, probably, because I just wanted to have beautiful handwriting. I still do a bit, but I don't have as much time now. And did you succeed? Do you like your handwriting? I like it. It's not quite... I used to get pictures of Keats's handwriting. <laughs> so pretentious. Like, what a pretentious, ghastly 16-year-old. But I used to get <laughs> pictures of Keats's handwriting and try and mimic it. Uh, Everyone just used to write beautifully. Didn't they? Yes. And now, generally, it's a scrawl. But I do, I do get... The biggest compliment I've ever had was that when I was, I don't know, 12, I opened a bank account and I tried to close it a couple of years ago. And they said, okay, but you need to sign it with the signature that you used back then. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I, I can't remember what it is. And they were like, well, you need to. <laughs> you need to know what it is to close it. And I've sort of had a lot of back and forth. And eventually I was like, well, I don't remember because I must have been 10 or mm -hmm. something, or 11 when I like opened this thing. And the woman was like, no, there's no way you were that. I'm like, well, I was. It definitely was because my dad took me. And it was in the old village I used to live in when I was a child. And she was like, no, because the signature is the signature of an adult. Oh. And then I looked at it. I was like, no, no, that was my signature when I was 10. Oh, but how was, brilliant. Yes, that's my Shelley phase. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's when I thought I was going to be an Elizabethan diarist as a <laughs> nine-year-old boy. But that has disappeared, hasn't it? The, well, for a start, handwriting itself may well disappear as a thing because it's, mm. it's done less and less. Uh, my father had the most beautiful handwriting. It was gothic almost, but he could write it incredibly quickly. But that's because that's what he was taught at school. You sat for ages, yeah. going over and over and over again, just doing the same letter until you got it right. And there was kind of a, there, there were like penmanship styles mm -hmm. and everyone kind of, obviously people would have their own slight variation, but it was really quite uniform, I think, in the way different people learnt to write. Yes. Well, for a lot of people, a lot of certainly working class boys, being good at writing, having nice handwriting, gave you a way out of not doing a working mm. class job. You could go into into a white collar job. Yeah, so I just think it's like, I find it so incredibly satisfying. <laughs> and actually, if I'm having a, a lazy day, I can quite happily watch a YouTube video of someone with beautiful handwriting. Really? Doing a bit of calligraphy or handwriting. I just find it <laughs> soothing to watch. Yeah. I have a friend who writes beautifully, but writes incredibly slowly. And every letter uh, is separate. Mm. She doesn't do joined up writing, which is really weird. Yeah, that's interesting. I've got to a point where I think I'm happy with how it looks and I can read it. Mm. And people do... I've had... Listen, I've had compliments on my handwriting. But um, <laughs> I think not only is people's handwriting getting worse, people forget how to read handwriting. Mm-hmm. Because it is kind of a skill, deciphering different letters written in all different ways. I've had friends where I've written a birthday card and sort of done a little message inside. 
who've been like, it's beautiful, but I can't tell what it says. Wow. I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's not that insane. Like, it's not calligraphy. No. Um, do you know what I love? I love messy handwriting. I love, I just think it's fascinating. Mm. Like, a do- why, why are all doctors scrawling? So many things to write down, I think. That's the problem. Yeah, I guess so. You've got to learn a quick way of writing. And yet it's yeah. amazing how quickly you can work out somebody's handwriting once you get used to it. And it can have yeah. very little detail in it. And yet you can actually, mm. they'll just put lines for whole sections of words. Yeah. And you sort of go, well, actually, now I know what that would have been. Yeah. And it's amazing because a, a, like an old style sort of cursive R mm. next to a series of N's and M's and U's can actually all just look like, yeah. if you really saw it, it would just be a wiggly line. Yeah, yeah. And yet, and yet, you can figure out what it says. <laughs> and yet, indeed. And the wonderful thing also about handwriting, which will be lost completely if we all go to the situation, which I think we probably will, because once you can just talk to things, and that's so close now, is that you just talk to it, mm. and, and if it needs to be in, in a written form, it will write it for you. Yeah. And then handwriting disappears then. So true. But if you look at somebody's handwriting... I can recognise my mother's handwriting on a piece of paper. Mm. I'd open a drawer and there will be a letter of my mother. I know immediately that it's my mother's handwriting. I recognise it instantly. Yeah, and same with my mum and dad. Mm. I think there's something really interesting. Obviously, this is a vast generalisation, but on the whole, women's handwriting is nicer than men's. I think you're right, yeah, yeah. And I wonder, like, it can't be anything genetic. (laughs) So, like, what is happening... Is it an inclination to care more? Is it something socially conditioned in the sort of activities that society makes girls do more than boys? Like, what is it that's making that happen? I find it fascinating. And I suppose also they're more diligent, more careful in their work when they're studying. Maybe, yeah. That you ought to be inspired as a man. You ought to be able to do things in a rather slapdash way and still be brilliant. Mm. There's always that pressure on you as a man to look as if you've not made an effort. Yeah, and maybe it's sort of a, a sort of modern boys aren't allowed to take great care and, and really love making something a bit more beautiful. And maybe I want to not put a smite in note, but maybe I just want the concept of handwriting in this fold. <laughs> well, I think the journal does cover that. It makes you think of that immediately. Yeah. I think it's rather lovely. I'm going to look in my... somewhere in here. Ah, no, but that's not one, sadly. But look at that. That's a flexis notebook. Oh, that's beautiful. It is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. And, it and as you can yeah. see, the, the sides of the pages are all... Is that gilt? Yeah, gilt all down it? the side with, oh. the, with the pattern on it. That was always, is and was one of my like greatest pleasures, going to a stationery mm-hmm. shop, even just going to a WH Smith when you were a kid and getting <laughs> a new pencil case for school or something like that. Yes, the start of school term. Oh, yeah. my gosh. <laughs> I loved it so much. And all those things you've never used. Yeah. <laughs> those little semicircles with numbers all over. What was that? Absolutely not. No. no. No, but a good pen and handwriting. But we'll mm. put that journal in to make us remember it and yeah. to represent it. Thank you very much. It's lovely. What a lovely thing. So um, let's move on to number three. Right, I hope you're enjoying my chat with Daniel Fox. Unfortunately, unless you're an ACAS Plus listener, we now have to interrupt it with some ads. We'll be back before you can say Super Cali. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Califragilistic expialidocious. Welcome back. Right, let's get straight back to Daniel Fox and find out what else he'd want in his time capsule. Number three, I'm putting in ombre solaire uh, sun cream. <laughs> the smell of ombre solaire sun cream. Mm. I, I was trying to figure out, I wanted to put a smell in. I've got so many different things that I love that are very evocative scents, but I just love the smell of like childhood sun cream. Mm -hmm. Um, And most children hate having sun cream put on. Maybe I did, but I don't think... No, I don't think I did. That's an absolute lie. I love putting sun cream on. Um, (laughs) But just the smell of it is so heavily associated with like summertime, holidays, Mm. just joyful occasions Mm. that now I can put it on without being anywhere and sort of be transported to this. I've probably got someone now. Um, <laughs> so I'm putting that in. There was sort of closely running with, and maybe even what I could put in is a sort of amalgam of smells, which is ombre solaire sun cream, mm-hmm. the smell of a cigarette. <laughs> yes. Not one I'm smoking. No. But one that is nearby and a little bit of coffee and a bit of salt. Yeah, I want, I want this sort of seaside cafe smell. Right. Or beachside hotel morning smell. Yes. I think there's nothing more pleasing than the smell of sun cream and cigarettes. (laughs) Does that make you think of your parents then? Is that a childhood holiday or not? Yeah, yeah, it does make me think of childhood. But it also weirdly makes me think of, I think the element of the cigarette is it's the smell of, yeah, it must be sort of 90s holidays because less and less do you smell a cigarette out and about. But there's something also a bit sort of chic in it to me. It's sort of a bit stylish, like a bit sort of glamorous about the smell of a cigarette the heat, the smell of sort of hot paving. Yeah, I want like either hot wood mm. or hot flagstone smell. Right. And sun cream and coffee. Lovely. I just think that is such an evocative scent. Mm-hmm. And you sit and look at the sea. Yeah. I think it'll be warm enough this afternoon. We might go in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I won't. I'll just lay there and read. <laughs> I don't know. God knows what. My own diary entry is aged seven. Um, <laughs> Do you holiday much now, then? Do you get a chance to holiday? I don't. I'm making a point of doing it this year after the Fringe, which is just going to be joyous, I think. And I love going, but it will be so intense. Mm -hmm. So we've got a couple of weeks, 10 days in Greece, Corfu, where everyone seems to be going this year. It's the place, suddenly. Suddenly. And I don't know, like, because I don't remember hearing anyone talking about it in a way that made me think, oh, I shall go there this year. Mm -hmm. I saw like an old review of a hotel from years ago and thought, oh, that sounds nice. Mm -hmm. 
but every single interview, post on social media, everyone's there. Yeah, I've got lots of friends who've gone this year to Corfu, yeah. and it would have been a stopping-off point. You would have gone there and then gone to another island, maybe. Yeah. I always loved the idea of Corfu. When I was a child, I used to read Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals uh, all the time. Yeah. So I love the idea of going to Corfu. I, I think there were some of the earliest books that I read that gave me, again, a kind of feeling of feeling a bit inspired yeah. in that way of, of being like, I want to go and live somewhere else. I want to go to, yeah, Corfu. I think that is partly why in my mind I thought of Corfu. Yeah. I, for a while I thought I wanted to be a naturalist. Mm-hmm. Do I mean naturalist? Not a naturist. Yeah, no, that would not, be... not a naturist, yes. no. <laughs> Gerald Durrell, the famous naturist. Well, a naturist naturalist would be interesting, but dangerous, I think. Yeah, <laughs> and scorpions. Um, yeah, I just wanted to walk around with the um, what they, little emerald beetles and looking for scorpions under rocks mm-hmm. and all of that. There's always this scene that makes me think of him and his mentor eating prawns. Fresh out of the sea. Uh, they look alive. They're just eating them. Was, didn't even know you could do that. No. Amazing. Fireflies, I was thinking. Fireflies. Fireflies, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. L- little um, pink villa. I love the number of things that you've wanted to be in your life. That, and they're all rather sort of romantic and remote, aren't they? Yeah. I think I'd use, I love and loved fantasising about all the different things that you could be. Mm. and would sort of just decide each week that I was a different thing. <laughs> um, we went to Corfu when I was a child and stayed in a villa and I read My Family and Other Animals. Mm-hmm. And then I spent the whole time planning all the different tanks and things I was going to do. And I got back and I went searching. I found all these spiders in the field and put them in tanks in my room and I found a newt and I found all sorts of stuff. Because my dad is a sort of a scientist of fish and like aquatics. Right. So I was very keen on having tanks around the house and stuff and was very supportive of that as a hobby for the weeks that it lasted. But yeah, there is something about evoking different kind of lives. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But you've sort of done it yourself. You've sort of gone, okay, well, uh, this is not a normal life you lead. I'm going to say that to you in case you think it is. Uh, (laughs) It's a bold thing to do, to say, well, do you know what? I'm going to stand up in front of people and say things and they're going to laugh. Yeah. Well, you hope they will. (laughs) Yeah, I think I wanted to, I definitely wanted to try and do something that I thought would be interesting. And yes, it's definitely harder in things like going on holiday or planning time because you just do not have that regular schedule. And in a way, certainly on on the way up, you are taking every opportunity. Mm. So you sort of can't check out for a month. No. You've got to be available to what might come through. Yes, particularly at this stage where you're sort of breaking through, where you're really beginning to be noticed and uh, and being invited to all those. I booked tickets today to go and see uh, Stuart Lee at the National Maritime oh, Museum yeah. because I love Stuart Lee. And uh, I noticed that you were doing it. I think I might come along and see your show as well. But you're performing there, aren't you, in September? Yes. Yeah. 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 You had to think um, about that for a moment, didn't you? Yes, yes. I did. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that would be lovely yeah. if you came along. It'd be lovely to meet you properly in person. Mm. But it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that suddenly you've got that and you're on the bill mm. with the greats of stand-up comedy. Yeah. I have to sort of pinch myself and also really remember to... And this is something journaling is good for, of checking in and going, if I had done that three years ago, that would have been the best thing I'd done that year. Mm-hmm. That would be That would have blown my mind that I would have done this thing and to really not let those things become... Not routine, because it's always fun, but to just really try and remember how much you wanted something when you get it. Yeah, quite. Uh, when you're doing it, when it's happening, and just enjoy it and not... I think the curse of 
particularly sort of the modern times is always thinking about the next thing. Or going, oh, not Wembley again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm often saying that now. I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, but you see, you've had the courage to do that. You've had the courage to go into this very difficult profession at the same time with the ambition that you're going to write a hit musical. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think I've, I, so I think that links back to what you're saying. I've, I think I've gone, okay, how many lives can I cram into one? Then in that case, well, how much can I do as one sort of ghostly boy <laughs> um, <laughs> without completely frying myself? I think, yeah, I don't, I, I find it hard to just do one thing. I like to have a, a few things on the go. Mm. And yeah, the musical theatre kind of happened, not by accident, but kind of, I wasn't planning on doing that. I wrote a play mm. when I was at university, took that to the Edinburgh Fringe, and the producer, the girl that produced it, paired me up with a writer called Robin Grant, who writes musicals, mm-hmm. to turn that play into a musical. And then we've sort of become very close co-writers, best friends, mm-hmm. and sort of gone down this road of writing, I don't know how many we've done now, seven or eight or nine sort of comedy musicals. And trying to do something a little bit different of making musical theatre that is actually kind of has the punch of stand-up. Yes. The laughter of stand-up, not the laughter of kind of something you see at many theatres where like, someone says a joke and everyone goes... <laughs> very good. Very what, good, yeah. Really very, oh, that's terrible. Very drama. good. And it only took five minutes to set up. How marvellous. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> where we want people to be like belly laughing and snorting and it to be kind of punch and filth. Mm. I went to see Operation Mincemeat. Oh, great. Which I loved. Absolutely loved. Yeah. And I saw it in the preview. It was very exciting for me, actually, because I was in the show before the show before that at that theatre, the Fortune Theatre. Oh, which, really? which means, because the woman in black was on there, I did it when I was in my 30s. Oh, wow. A musical review. Was it? Yeah. So I can understand exactly the joy that you get from it. Yeah. People can be snooty about musical comedy, mm. especially on stage, kind of stand up with music. People can be snooty about it. But I think if it's done well, it can be the best combination of two things. Yes. And it's the hardest thing to do, I think. I mean, combining the two. Yeah. Because you can be tempted by one or the other. One or the other will destroy the other, as it were. Mm. You'll say, well, the music has to go like this. And because you're doing it in a rhythm, you feel as if you can't suddenly speed up. Whereas, in fact, comically, that's what you need to do. Yeah. But when it's written well, you do do that. Yeah, it's sort of going, um, write me a brilliant joke, now make it rhyme. Is sort of a, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. But it can just be quite euphoric. And, um, yeah, we're doing one at the moment called unfortunate the untold story of ursula the sea witch which is kind of a, a parody of little mermaid story good but timing yeah it's it's fallen very nice we sort of we started we did it for the first time in 2019 but it's um it's sort of stepping up a notch now coming out this autumn again and it's great timing for it yeah lovely well, I wish you all the best. I've had some great times doing those sort of shows. And uh, mm-hmm. and I, I do love the idea. I mean, I've done a lot of, in my career, I've done a lot of musical comedy, as it were, mm. of songs that were supposed to be funny rather than serious. And, you know, writing a nice song, well, that's very personal, isn't it? People listen to music and go, well, I really like it, or they don't. Mm. But if you write a song that's supposed to be funny as well as entertaining, then you really are putting yourself on the line. Yeah, it's very true. It's so fascinating how people will immediately hold you to a higher standard. The moment they feel like, oh, it's a comedy. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, if that joke had been in just a normal straight play, but was sort of archly given (laughs) to the... People would have been rolling in the aisles 
But if it is amongst other jokes and it's a comedy musical, they will suddenly go, whoa, we're holding this to a stand-up. And it, no one's consciously doing that, but just as a mob, the audience goes, okay, well, you've got a previous... Oh, you're trying to be funny. <laughs> you, okay. And it rhymed, and the tune was quite nice, but... <laughs> yeah, but it better be good. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a British thing, that in our country and our society, there's sort of like... Oh, you think you're funny, do you? <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> but there's such a tradition of it in this country as well. I would say going back to Flanders and Swan, right the way through, that idea of comedy done with music. Yeah. Traditionally, that's what a review was. It was songs and sketches. What's the name of the two, um, I guess, sort of early drag queens? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, they played sort of... Um, but it was something to do with like Bolton. Hinge and Bracket. Hinge and Bracket. That was it. So brilliant. My parents went and saw them when they were dating, I think, and how always tell stories of the sort of the way that they manage the audience. My dad sort of bites snails mm. and one of them leant down and sort of went, fingers out, dear, and then sort of carried on with the song and they absolutely loved it. Yeah. I'm trying to, this is the first, this Edinburgh show I'm doing is the first time I, I've always kind of kept music and comedy separate. Mm-hmm. Well, I've done comedy musicals, but I've not done any music in my stand-up. But as the, the show, the hour-long show, which is called Villain. So it's kind of, I'm framing it around, roughly around the the sort of idea that most villains in most films are kind of coded gay. (laughs) And they really are when you go back. There's a sort of campness and a archness, always very architecturally progressive houses and sort of... <laughs> White cats. Yeah, cats and cloaks and cocktails and, like, <laughs> it's so camp. But it feels right to bookend that show with music. So I'm sort of playing a bit of piano and doing some sort of arch singing. Brilliant. Because the villain song is such a staple of musical theatre, actually, mm-hmm. it felt the right time to kind of bring those two together. So it'd be very interesting to see how that goes down. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> well, I hope that afterwards, when you get to Greece, you can sit there and have the smell of a cigarette and ombre mm. solaire and relax. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that goes into the time capsule for you. We've got two left. Yeah. We've got one you want to keep and one you want to get rid of. Yes. Okay. I'm going to put into the time capsule as my thing to keep, my last thing to keep, a Motorola V600 flip phone. (laughs) Beautiful. I think it was my phone when I was 13, so it must have been early 2000s. And it was just early, like probably the first round of flip phones that came out. It was a lovely, other than the giant ones, it was um, a sort of lovely silver and black, very stylish, beautiful little phone with a little screen on the front and all that the screen could have on it was the clock. (laughs) Um, Everything was still sort of black and uh, white kind of text and stuff at that point, I think. But I felt like the most executive businesswoman of the, like every, (laughs) I don't know, film from the 90s and 2000s, that snapping shut motion and opening Mm. to answer and end a call. I found myself sort of hanging up on people just so I, because I wanted to do that, (laughs) not because anyone had said anything wrong. I just felt like so... I think that's a lot of the things I've put in. It just felt impossibly chic. Yes. I felt so adult and so cool with this little phone (laughs) um, in a way that I just don't feel about any modern smartphone. And I felt such joy, again, kind of imagining who I would be with this phone. Mm. I miss it. And I miss the days of the Carphone Warehouse magazine. (laughs) 
where you could flip through it and there would be hundreds of different phones. Yes. And everyone would have a different phone. Like you could say to someone, oh, what phone do you have? And they could walk you through and it would be different because everyone had just had a different one. And now, even though they may be a different make, they look exactly the same, don't they? They look the same. Apart yeah, from that like... new one, I was very excited, the, the one where you could open it up and, and it was one large screen. Mm, yes, the Samsung flip phone. Flip phone, yes. Well, I was, for half of a second, in an <laughs> advert for the Samsung flip phone. Oh. So I am legally required to say that, yes, it's a brilliant phone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I right. lost it with my Motorola V600, I think. Yeah. Uh, but the thing about the flip phone, I think, mm. is that it's like, I mean, socially, it's like going back to an era of having a fan almost because it becomes a yeah. language, doesn't it? Just yeah. somebody, oh, I've got a call, and the flip of the wrist and the thing opens. Mm. And then, as you say, you can react aggressively, yeah. sexily. Yeah. You can do whatever you like afterwards. Bye then, bye. Yeah. Gently or, oh, or ciao. Fuck you then. Yeah, you're either a cosmopolitan, suave person from, I don't know, Florence, <laughs> or you are some, like, business bitch from New York 1981. <laughs> and I was very happy to be either one. <laughs> I just loved it. And I think part of it was that, because I grew up in the countryside of Hampshire, mm. in a little village, and just was desperate to live in London, and um, I think having that and walking around rural roads, hanging up on my mum with a snap. <laughs> <laughs> and saying, look, I'm an adult, according to my signature. <laughs> let me go, will you? Will you let me go to the Royal Court Theatre? <laughs> I just loved it. Yeah. I think it's sad that it's so uniform now. It was such a short period of time where that would have been a thing. It must have been like 2000 to 2010 mm -hmm. max that those magazines yeah. would have been there for you to pick all the different ones. It's amazing how quickly it winnowed down to just three brands and really one brand. But yeah, oh well, um, I do have a lot of these phones still in my house. Do you? Yeah, I never got rid of them. It's hard to let go. They became the toy of my grandchildren mostly. Oh, did they? It shows how durable they are mm. because they're all still intact. Yeah. Whereas I don't think I've ever had a smartphone that hasn't ended its life in millions of brittle pieces some of them lodged into my cheek or thumb. <laughs> but my LG white chocolate from 2009, which told me it was a hairdresser's phone, but I stand by, <laughs> was a beautiful piece of art. <laughs> <laughs> you plough your own furrow. Yeah, absolutely. Good. I'm glad to see it. Well, yes, they put that in there. Fully charged. And as fully it's fully charged. charged, it'll work for about seven days. Yeah. yeah. It will still be on when we dig this up. In it will 40 be. Years. The battery never runs out on those things. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Okay. So finally, Daniel, all we have to do is put in the thing you want to bury and forget. The thing I'm burying forevermore mm -hmm. is milk. <laughs> all milk is going in this capsule. I think the prospect of drinking when people oh my god when people drink a pint of milk adults particularly when an adult person and i'm sorry if you do but when an adult person and my boyfriend does it <laughs> almost relentlessly drink a pint of milk i think you freak <laughs> i think it belongs in the realms of people that wear nappies and dummies for fun or like i think it's such a creepy act and I don't hold all dairy to that standard. 
yogurt, fine. Cheese, fine. Mm-hmm. There's just something about drinking milk to me that is feels like the world is moving on. It is so straight from the teat, isn't it? Yeah, it's just so visceral. I, I think it, I don't eat meat. I will eat a bit of cheese. I'm not vegan, but I don't, I don't drink milk. Mm. But I stopped drinking milk before I stopped eating meat, actually. Early, it must have been 12 or something. Just the idea of a mouthful. <laughs> I'm sorry, bodily fluid. Makes me just, oh, it's awful. <laughs> you're right. See, when you look at it that way, you're absolutely yeah. right. And I do drink a pint of milk and yeah. I quite like it. If it's really chilled, I like it. Yeah. It's when it gets not so chilled, you become suddenly aware as you're halfway through, oh my God, this is from a cow. Mm. And you can taste it. And then I think, oh, I often feel a little bit sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. This is actually going back to what you said at the start of this conversation when you said, who was the first person that did this? Because mm-hmm. at some point, someone have been, will have been like, Terry, what are you doing? As someone was... <laughs> well, they say, well, their babies do it. And, you know, and I'm really, really thirsty and hungry. And, you know, yeah. I thought I'd have some of it. Oh, God. From that big hairy thing yeah are you sure that's why you're doing it yeah no that's why i'm doing it 100 percent. i just think it's awful and but again i would drink a milkshake ah right and not i would prefer it was oat milk or something mm-hmm. but i wouldn't i wouldn't be as disgusted if it had other stuff in it it's the it's the pure it's the act of just drinking milk on its own that i think and increasingly i think it's like an annoying act of resistance when someone insists when an order is happening of coffees and someone goes like, I'll have an oat latte, I'll have an oat flat white, and then someone goes, normal milk for me. I think, oh, <laughs> shut up. Shut up. <laughs> the world's gone that way, hasn't oh, it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, right. Yes, all the other ways of doing it. So uh, soya and oat. and mm-hmm. My wife drinks soya. Yeah. She never drinks milk. And yeah. it may be for that reason. I've never discussed it with her, really, but uh, she just stopped doing it. She may well look at me and go, you animal. You absolute beast. <laughs> I think it's fa- it is amazing how quickly, because it used to be, I, oat milk wasn't even something that we even thought about until 10 years, even fewer, maybe. Mm. Um, soy was all you could get. Then there was this like wave of almond milk arriving, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, yeah. almond milk!" Um, <laughs> then coconut milk had a brief kind of um, its moment in the sun, and then oat. Yeah, and they keep trying to pip it. There was that potato milk that was like someone tried potato milk to try and get that out there. It tastes exactly like you'd imagine. <laughs> it tastes like someone has boiled potatoes, and you're just drinking starch, um, <laughs> and it's vile. Rice milk is fine. It's quite nice. But oat is staying strong. And now if you go into a even a little sort of stall, I don't know, a festival or something, a little sort of pop-up thing, if you say to them, have you got soya? They go, soya, oat, we've got yeah. all that, you know. Well, why would we not? Yeah. And when occasionally, because my wife drinks soya, so I will always have to ask for it, do you serve soya, I'll say, in a pub or something? And they go, uh, no. Blows my mind. For a moment, you step back. As well. You don't. You really don't. Again, it is a statement that they are making. They are rebelling, is what they're doing. They've deliberately (laughs) gone, no, no, people don't need to have that. The amount of arts centres that I've been in doing comedy, where you go into like a lovely arts centre and they're like, oh no, we've only got cow. Why? Your patrons (laughs) absolutely want oat milk. So what's going on? Let us have it. 
give the people what they want, <laughs> let the milk of the cow die. It's a bit like going into a pub. I'll have a whiskey. Oh, no, we don't do No. no. Oh, what about a brandy? Yeah. No, don't do them. Just vodka. We find if people need a strong drink, that does it. Yeah, really. it's mad, isn't it? And I think there's, there's sort of a judgment in there of being like, you Nambi, Pambi, London types. <laughs> Absolutely. I sort of want to start inventing. Next time I'm home, I'm in a cafe with my parents. And they're like, what do you want? I'll have a, a latte. Do you have cat milk? Do you have that? <laughs> you don't. Oh, fine. Black will do. You don't. How bizarre. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm from London. Good. It's all guinea pig milk now. That's all we drink. <laughs> it's my London ways. Most of my friends carry a guinea pig milk <laughs> these days. <laughs> well, I'm going to now tell you something that I think is sort of a... I'm slightly ashamed of, is that only recently, whilst watching the television, did I realise that cows produce milk because they take the calf away from the mm-hmm. mother. Sad. That continues to produce milk. And I did not know that. I've yeah. never been aware of it. All my ridiculously long life. Yeah. Daniel, I'm I'm a fool. They do not want people to know that because it's so sad. Isn't it? Yeah. You don't think about that. And you think and you if you do think about it, you think of some sort of charming dairy where the cow wants you to have the milk. And you're sort of sharing, like, a cup for you, a cup for the calf. Not the case, no. No, it's not. No, so well done. I think you're right. Perhaps it's about time, with all these things, Mm -hmm. that we said goodbye to them and grew up. Just grow up, Michael, that's what I think. Just grow up, will you? (laughs) Yes. My favourite actor's joke, which you may or may not get, but it is my favourite actor's joke, so I'll leave you with it, Daniel, which is that two old actors on the stage, both very hard of hearing, and they're both dry and can't remember their lines. So they, they call for a prompt, they can't hear it. And one of them says, ah, it's all right. And he walks to the curtain, he pulls the curtain aside, he said, ah, the milkman's coming. When I was a boy, a milkman came on a cart, a horse-drawn cart, galloped down the street, and then he would pull up and shout, Milko, Milko. And women would scurry from their kitchens with a covered pan, and he would ladle from a great urn and pour the milk into the covered pan and they would protect it and rush back to their homes and when they were all full he would move on the horse would clip clop down the road as he shouted milko milko then he turns to the other actor and says any help It's mad, isn't it? I love that. Um, oh, good. <laughs> I really love that. Um, can I share one before we go? Yes, Another act. Um, this is not... Well, okay, someone told... I, I read somewhere, actually, that um, Serene McKellen, when he was young, <laughs> his way of sort of flirting with other actors in the cast, would, he might sort of go up to a, another sort of gentleman in the cast and be like, um, my dear boy, do you know the difference between a blowjob and a quiche? I'm kind of like, no, no, I don't. But, oh, well, then we should have a picnic. <laughs> Which I think is wonderful. Very good, yes. I saw McKellen as a very young man. I saw him play Romeo at, at the Royal Shakespeare Company many years ago in the 1970s. And uh, he was a bit old to play Romeo. Yeah. So he was probably about 30 at the time. And he stood the whole time with his feet pointing in towards each other to try and make himself look younger. Oh, really? That's very sweet. <laughs> 
very sweet. Well, that is that the trick then. I shall be standing around the whole fringe. You'll see me with my little toes pointing together. Saying, be sympathetic, I'm only young. I'm so young to be doing this festival for the first time. <laughs> Am I not brave? Surely. And look at my handwriting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For one so young and beautiful. Daniel, it's been really lovely to meet you and fantastic to talk to you about this. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. Good. It's been Hurrah. really, really, really lovely. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Daniel Fox. Do rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast if you have the time. Subscribing is just a click of a button, as is rating, of course, so I hope you can find the time to bolster our profile, especially if you like the podcast. If you're not that bothered, A, why are you still listening, and B, well, there isn't a B, really, yeah, and if you can hear rain in the background, that's because I'm in Guadeloupe and you get these extraordinary downpours. Still nothing for you to worry about. Do follow me and my time capsule on social media. Twitter is almost certainly the best place to get in touch with me and I'm happy to chat on there and answer any questions, apart from where the treasure is hidden, obviously. But do come on and say hello. You can listen to the theme tune on Spotify if you want. It was written by Pass the Peas Music. And, of course, if you'd rather have this podcast without ads, then for £2.99 a month, you can, through Acast Plus. Details in the written description of this episode. This podcast was produced by John Fenton-Stevens, and it was a cast-off production for Acast, which seems appropriate, as, as I said, I'm currently sitting in a bungalow near the beach in Guadeloupe, recording this. If you like, I'm about to cast off. Ahaha. Yeah, you see, now that's the sort of dedication we give this podcast. I could be sitting by a beach bar or swimming in the Caribbean Sea or even the hotel swimming pool, which is one of those huge kidney-shaped ones, to remind everyone that after a couple of weeks here, your kidneys are still working, but your liver probably isn't. Still, don't tell me to stop, will you? Don't say, Mike, get out in the sunshine, you idiot. You just leave me here, chuntering away. In a room, I have to say, where the air conditioning has been turned off so that it doesn't ruin this voiceover, despite the fact that it's been already ruined by a rainstorm. I'm basically sitting in a puddle of my own bodily fluid just for your entertainment. So I hope you're bloody enjoying... Sorry? Hi, what a rum punch. No, 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 make mine a pina colada. Okay. I'm sick to death of rum punches. A what? Who was that? No one important. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. 
ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.